0: Good morning, Three Rivers Church. And grab a Bible, James chapter 4, verse 13 to 17. It's good to see you this morning. I'm very glad that you are here. James 4, verse 13 to 17. I'm a little out of practice, and so I may preach for an hour and a half. Um, Some of you guys know what that's like. Some of you don't, and you're afraid, and you're thinking about leaving now, but uh, that's okay. And I'm working on starting a recording device, and so if I mess something up, give me a little, little runway this morning. James 4, verse 13 to 17. Here's what the word of the Lord says. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. It is sin. In this scripture today, our big idea, our central theme that comes out of the passage that we need to see is this. It is absolutely imperative for us that we go after, seek first, the kingdom of God and the will of God. The big idea is that we go after the will of God by not seeking the will of God, by not going after the will of God and becoming friends of the world system, which John calls in 1 John 2, 16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of eyes, and the pride in life. By not seeking God's will and becoming friends of the world, we discovered last week that we bring trouble and not peace on ourselves and on others. So let's frame James 4:13 to 17 and sit it in its context so we can make sense of it because it looks like when we read these short few verses it has absolutely nothing to do with the previous section or chapter five which comes up after it it almost looks like it doesn't fit that james is just randomly throwing out ideas but that's not true so we give you a little warren Weersby, who's an old guy He's no longer with us, and, and his commentary on this is very helpful. So he uses some old language that's going to be very helpful. And, uh, and, and I, so I want to share Warren Wisby with, with you. And by the way, these notes are available for you on the blog. It's been a while since you've had those from me. So theologyinthedirt.com or mitchjolly.com, you can go on your smart device or whatever and see all the notes that I have in front of me I've made available to you. So you can go back and unpack some of this in your radical life groups. So here's how we need to see the connection between James 4one to 12 and James chapter 5 with this little bridge passage about the will of God. He says James began chapter 4 talking about war with God. Warring within ourselves, fighting against the will of God, which leads to war with other people. And then he says it ends in talking about the will of God. But the two themes are related. When a believer is out of the will of God, he becomes a troublemaker and not a peacemaker. Lot moved into Sodom and brought trouble on his family. David committed adultery and brought trouble to his family and his kingdom. Jonah disobeyed God and almost sent a shipload of heathen sailors into a watery grave. In each case... There was a wrong attitude toward the will of God. So from those who were warring with God and warring with each other, down to chapter 5, those who were warring over who had and who didn't have, those who had, using it against those who didn't, those who didn't, decrying and not liking those who did, this attitude that was present was a wrong attitude about what God wanted these Christians have endured a lot. They have suffered terribly. And they have finally been established to some degree and they began flourishing. And some of that, though, has not turned out very good. Much likely most of the internal fighting revolved around seeking material growth and wealth in their new freedom. And the subsequent oppression of those who didn't have what others had. And then the disdain of those who did for those who Those who didn't for those who did. And this is how we connect James 4 and 5, which you're going to hear next week. At the heart of the connection between James 1, 1 1-12, verse 13-17, to and chapter 5, is the need we saw in verse 7 to resist the devil so that he flees from us and his world system by particularly seeking the will of God. So it brings up a question that's going to be very important for us today. How do we do that? How are they? What does James want for them as he's writing to them? What does he want for us as we are seeking the will of God? I think the scriptures here are going to give us three actions. So we want to unpack those for a few minutes. And then we want to look at some application on how we can put that to use today. And by the way, I want to encourage you, as I always have, when you gather... As a family, when you gather as a radical life group or when you have your private devotional, open your Bible and read, take these notes and use them. There's no way to be exhausted. If you've been around me long enough, you know I will give you more than we can do on Sunday morning and more than you can probably do in your small group. And the point is that you would go and use it, okay? Go and unpack and ask the Holy Spirit, how can I do more with this? What do you want to teach me in this? So use that for your benefits. There are three actions. Hopefully you're going to see some more from the text that you can take and we can take together. So how are they and how are we to seek the will of God? Number one, we're to seek the will of God by not living presumptuously. Come now you who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Don't live presumptuously. What makes, there's a key question for us, what makes my living presumptuous? What makes Mitchell Jolly's living life presumptuous? Verse 14 answers the question. An abject failure to see my present life soberly it's a failure to see my present life soberly and James answers the question you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring what's your life you're a mist that vanishes, jolly you're here one day and you're going to be gone the next so we begin to seek the will of God by recognizing ourselves soberly by not living a presumptuous life none of us are guaranteed to wake up tomorrow and none of us are guaranteed to wake up functional We can break and be on our face, not ambulatory, at the snap of a finger. Think of Daniel chapter 4, verse 28 to 37, where Nebuchadnezzar, who God calls his servant, by the way, Nebuchadnezzar is not a God-fearing king. He's a king who doesn't know the Lord. And God raised him up for a specific purpose, to be an instrument of refinement for his people. And Nebuchadnezzar is in his palace, and he's looking over all that he's done, and he makes this arrogant statement about what he has done and all he has built. And God, in that moment, puts on him this thing where for years he crawls around on all fours acting like an animal until he humbles himself and recognizes who he is. To just assume I'm going to be ambulatory next year is arrogant. And verse 16, listen to what verse 16 says about it. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is not good. What does it say? All such boasting is what? Evil. Evil. To just assume I'm going to be ambulatory is arrogant and evil. One minute we could be feasting like Job in our abundance. And the next minute we can be sitting in warm ashes, scraping our boils with broken pieces of pottery. Matthew chapter 6 verse 11, Jesus taught us to ask in prayer for today's needs, not tomorrow's. This is a side note here. I struggle with Jesus I Struggle with Jesus and here's why I struggle with Jesus because Jesus teaching doesn't fit neatly into where I live right now Where you live either Jesus taught us to ask for today's needs and today's needs only Because we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring and today has enough trouble of its own So he taught us don't fret about that live today And seek my provision for you today. He taught us to ask in prayer because we don't know anything about tomorrow or what it's going to bring. He taught us in that, and here's the point, to live out of a deep dependence on the Father daily. The reason we ask for today only is because I need to live in that kind of dependence on Him tomorrow too. And here's what I like to do. I like to have tomorrow secured so I can stop depending tomorrow. Because a life of faith and dependence on God is a challenge. God, just give me enough for this year, take care of this year, square away this year, and I can sit back and relax. That's not a life of faith. The life of faith says, Lord, I need you today as much as I needed you yesterday. So Lord, help me to live by faith today. So the Lord even taught us to pray depending radically on Him not for multi-year faith plans but for what we needed today not much of what Jesus taught plays well where we live and work and play and try to survive and I tend to try to worm my way out of it and around it as best I can by either explaining Jesus away or ignoring him altogether faith plans can be presumptuous plans understand this faith never equals presumption Walking the line between presumption and faith is done only with the Word, by the Holy Spirit, in Trinitarian fellowship, using spiritual disciplines daily to depend upon God and seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness so that we can know His will and His purpose for us today. Notice I said some things there that I think are worth unpacking and they're not in your notes. But walking this line between presumption and faith Is done only with the Scriptures open in front of us. In Trinitarian fellowship, depending on the disciplines together. Open Bible. Covenant fellowship with people who are walking in this mission together. And can I just challenge you? Don't eat for a while. You're going to make it. It's going to be okay. Don't eat until you hear God speak to you. Don't eat until you know what God wants from you. Pray without ceasing until you hear Him. Until the Spirit testifies and witnesses with your spirit and those you're walking in covenant fellowship with on His good purpose and will to how to follow Him today. James tells us here that their warring revolved around presumption and not Submitting to the will of God and having disdain for one another over what some had and what some didn't have. And they were warring over the passions of the flesh. And he says what you should do is make sure you understand you live not in presumption but in radical dependence on God to come through today. I'm convinced this is one of the reasons we look at our brothers and sisters in the global south and around the world who have nothing. They don't have software. They don't have money. And by the thousands, they make disciples to our ones or twos. Because they are radically dependent on God to come through today. And if He doesn't, they don't survive, so they depend on Him. And they have His Word, and they have each other, and they live in the disciplines. And they see the supernatural, unburdensome work of the kingdom of God come to them. And often we find ourselves fighting and quarreling and struggling and wrestling and wondering whether I should or should not even fast or pray or or spend time with my brothers and sisters in Christ or whether or not I should read my Bible today. And if we're going to walk in the will of God, we have to do it not in presumption but in deep faith and dependence on God. So that was the first way we seek the will of God. The second way we're going to seek the will of God together we see in verse 15. Verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So here's the little point to help you. Go all in. Go all in on knowing God's will. Go all in on knowing God's will. This one may be a little uncomfortable. Because verse 15 is instructing us to do a little more with a robust faith than merely saying, Lord willing. Right? Now, if you're from here, you've probably heard, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. Now, if unless you're really Georgian, you probably think, Lord willing, and there's not a flood, but no, 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 no. Does anybody know what that phrase means, by the way? It's not a creek. Does anybody know? I ain't no real Georgians in here. There's a few of y'all really Georgian. Died in the wool Georgian. All right, here we go. Lord willing, and the creek don't rise is an old phrase referring to the creek nation. Native Americans. Lord willing and the creek don't rise up, right? Not flood, flood, waters. No, 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 no. Lord willing, the creek don't rise. That language has been so infused to our culture that we just say, Lord willing, right? And what we don't realize, what we're saying is, is a robust dependence on God to come through today. That's often the danger in Christian subculture. We use Bible phrases and we forget that they have deep biblical theological meaning to have impact on us today. So when he's talking about going all in on the will of God, it's more than just saying, well, I'm going to have lunch, Lord willing. No, 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 no. When we say Lord willing, what we're saying here is I'm trying to live in a manner that is deeply dependent on God right Now. And if we're going to know the will of God and walk in it, we have to go all in on knowing God's will, which brings up the question, what is God's will? In the Old Testament, God's will is understood in his sovereign activity. In the New Testament, they begin to assume that the reader has that background and that reality is presupposed and given some explicit ways it is worked out in the world. I think you'd be surprised to find out that the New Testament only mentions five specific things in regard to God's will. This is very important. Very, very important. Because this can either cripple you if you don't understand it. If you just say God's will and think it's that 12 inch by 12 inch square I have to stand in or God's going to smack me, which is not what it means. Or if you don't consider it at all. What we want to consider is what does the Bible say? Because James is telling them here, listen, we can't boast about tomorrow. If we're going to live a life in God's will, we don't presume tomorrow. But we need to know what God wants from us. Well, what is his will? What does he want from us? There's a great little book that you might look to. It's called Found God's Will. It's a short little book. You can get a free PDF on the Internet. If you just Google it, Found God's Will, you'll find the book, and it will be worth your time reading. And in that little book, it's... It's really a study off of Augustine's work on the will of God, which is really a study of the Bible on the will of God. So ultimately, go to your Bible. And I'm going to give you the summary right here. Five places the Bible speaks about the will of God. That if the people in James had been seeking this, they wouldn't have been warring with God, not warring with each other, and not being presumptuous about their future. The first place you're going to find, John 6, 38-40, God's will is that we be saved. Listen, if we're going to know God's will at all, it has to start in salvation. We've got to know Jesus Christ. And so I want to say to us this morning, if we haven't come into a relationship with Jesus through repentance and faith, there's no use in seeking the will of God. It starts right there. God's will for us first and foremost is that we come into a life-transforming relationship with Jesus. There is one God. There are not many gods. And this one God's name is Jesus. And Jesus is the creator of all things. And He made everything that exists. There is nothing that exists He didn't create. And He made it perfectly and righteously. And He made it good. And mankind, being tempted by a satanic rebellion, falls into sin and rebellion against God. And everything breaks. The air breaks. The dirt breaks. The universe breaks. Everything breaks. Animals break. We broke. And our relationship with God was severed. And our relationships with each other are severed. And some outside of God's relationship seek things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of eyes, and pride in life. And it continually wars. But in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, took on flesh. And He came and He lived the perfect, sinless life. And He died in our place for our sin To substitute for us so that if we come to him in faith, we don't have to take the wrath of God. He took it for us and he substitutes our sin for his righteousness. And God makes us sons and daughters of God. And he calls us into fellowship with each other. That's where the will of God starts. If you're outside of that, there is no knowing the will of God. So I want to invite you this morning. If you don't know Jesus that way, believe upon him and you will be saved. It's that simple. So the first thing we learn in the Bible is it has to start by being saved if we're going to know the will of God. The second thing you're going to learn in the New Testament is from Ephesians 5, 17 to 20. Now, by the way, all of these could be separate sermons by themselves, so we're going to run through them like Jehu through the house of Ahab. We're going quick. So I want you to go back and study them. He wants us to be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5, 17 to 20. God's will for us is that we walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus ascended, before He ascended, to the Father, in John 14, 15, and 16, before he goes to the cross, before he's buried and rises and ascends to the Father, Jesus gave us a concentrated teaching on the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to us by the Son to bring the Father and the Son to be with us forever. His ministry is that of truth and conviction of the world of sin and righteousness and judgment to remind us of everything He has said. And Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, 17-20 to that our life is to be a life that is filled with His presence and His power. Meaning we're to daily walk in relationship with the Holy Spirit. Meaning daily He will talk to us, He will speak to us, He will guide us into truth. So if we're going to know the will of God, we've got to live filled with the Spirit who knows the will of God. Number three, got to be submissive to God's will. Ephesians 5:21 through chapter 6, verse 4, which follows up a spirit-filled life. He teaches us that we are to be submissive to God's will. And by the way, I think it's important to quickly say this. This does not mean subject to abuse or being subject to whatever somebody or some group thinks you or me or anybody else ought to do out of their opinion bank. Submission is to God's truth and God's righteousness. Humble submission doesn't equal submission to wrong or submission to opinions that stand contrary to fact. It is submission to God's truth. So if we walk in the will of God, we are people who are submissive to God's will. Fourth, we're to be sanctified in purity. God's will for us is explicitly stated. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-8 For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. And so we are to be sanctified in purity. It is God's will. You will find in the Old Testament this radically hard, difficult connection between impure and idol worship. You will find those two things hardwired together. The false worship of the demonic is hardwired to impurity. And so he states here that his will is that we be pure. Fifth and finally, you're going to find in 1 Peter 2:13 to 23 and verse 15 in that section connects the will of God to what he states explicit, explicitly is his will, and that is suffering. Suffering. God's will is that his people also walk through suffering. Suffering has some cleansing effects first Peter chapter 4 verse 1 to 2 says he who has suffered in the flesh is done with sin done There is a cleansing effect on suffering in the life of the believer That teaches us to shun the world system the lust of the flesh the lust of eyes and pride in life And so those five things teach us God's explicit will for us So here's a question if we're doing those things because remember Big idea is go after the will of God. Go after the will of God is the basis for making sure we're financially doing right by each other and that we're not warring with God and warring with each other. If we're to live in God's will in these things, what are we to do in the nuances of daily life, right? Because you gotta live today. You gotta decide to wash clothes or don't wash clothes, right? And I got some nasty ones at my house that were footballed all week and nasty kids who stink and what's the will of God, right? It's a good question. I don't think the Bible tells me what the will of God for Daniel or John Mark's laundry is. I have an idea. Wash it, right? Something but what about the nuances of daily life? Is it God's will that we go get groceries today? Is it God's will that we make up for lost time yesterday and move and Gabe to the University of North Georgia? What's God's will for today? How are we living the nuance of daily life if we're going to seek after the will of God so that we can walk obediently with each other in the mission God's given us? Psalm 37, 4 is the answer. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you or put in you the desires of your heart. Here's what Augustine said about Psalms 37.4. This is awesome. Love God, then do as you please. Love God, then do as you please. Because if you love God, right? If you have been born into the kingdom of God and your heart's been transformed and you love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And you are filled with the Spirit, walking by Holy Spirit's counsel, submissive to the will of God living a life of sanctification, and you are suffering, then guess what God is going to put into your heart? His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Right? His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Because what does the Bible tell us in Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, about the work of salvation through Jesus Christ, that God will take out a cold, dead heart and give us a new heart that delights to walk in His way. So when we have the Holy Spirit living in a transformed heart and we have things in us that are good, right, and holy, that are desires, guess what the Holy Spirit should whisper in your ear? Go for it. Right? And so James is teaching these guys here, Lord willing is so much more than a phrase we tack on to something we hope to do, but a life of radical submission to God's will and purpose. And it looks like walking in those things. I want to encourage you to talk with each other about what suffering looks like for us here. Because that's one, it's easy to look overseas and look at our brothers and sisters and our country and other countries we work in and go, that's suffering. And yes, it is. But I want you to understand also that suffering isn't absent here either. Suffering is part of the will of God for us, and it's one of the tools God uses to sanctify us so that we are done with sin. But it's only in those things that we begin to discover God's good, pleasing, and perfect will, as Paul calls it in Romans chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. So, don't presume. Seek after the will of God. And third, seek out the right. In quotes, the right of submitting fully to God's will. Failure to live like this is sin. Look at verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. You and me, us, we don't get to determine the right James is speaking about in verse 17. We must not read onto the Bible meaning from outside of it the so in verse 17 notice he says at the beginning of the verse so that connecting word grammatically connects verse 17 back to james intent of verse 13 to 16 and what is the intent of verse 13 to 16 to teach us how to walk in the will of god therefore the right thing that james is talking about we're to pursue is the will of god this is an important thing for us to look at here because this is one of those verses that's easy to misuse on each other. What's the right thing to do? The Bible can never mean what it never meant. So this is a Bible study note, right? Bible study note. If you want to know how to study your Bible, how to read it, how to study it, remember this, the Bible can never mean what it never meant. The author's intent is the meaning of the text. I don't get to determine that. My circumstances don't get to determine that. The Holy Spirit meant what He meant through the author and the circumstances in which the inspired text was written. Does that make sense? So the text means something and I don't bring that meaning to the text. God put it in there through the inspired author. We can easily bring meanings from outside the text and bring them onto the text in a host of ways. One of the most dangerous ways that happens is when we define Bible words with world practices and then read that definition back into the Bible and then quote it out of the Bible with the world's definition written into it. Make sense? And then we can take that and use it on each other and miss the will of God. This is exactly what Satan does to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 when the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Satan comes with these things. And the last and most deceptive is jump off. Because Psalm 91 says, and here's what Satan does, he quotes it right. He doesn't get it wrong. The problem with what Satan does is he misapplies it in how he defines what it means. Jesus knows this because he's the one who gave Psalm 91. And the danger for us is often we can read passages like this and start determining what the right thing is for everybody else and miss what James says is the right thing. It's far too easy to impose a cultural, communal, or self-created right onto verse 17 and ignore James' point altogether. Here's Kurt Richardson commenting on verse 17. The right that believers know they must do is obedience to and dependence on the will of God. Is there not a close relationship here between Paul's principle, everything that doesn't come from faith is sin from Romans 14:23? Therefore that which is of faith is virtually synonymous with that which with I can't read. Back up, start over. That which is of faith is virtually synonymous with that which is the good. Therefore, seeking the right is seeking the life of faith that is radically dependent on knowing and doing God's will and needing God to come through in the face of opposition to his will. So, quick recap. Three things we do to go after the will of God in this passage. One, don't presume. Two, go all in on knowing God's will. And three, seek the right by fully submitting to His will. So, what are we going to do with it? One, number one, today, do your very best to let sober-mindedness about yourself For me, let sober-mindedness about myself have its effect of humility more than giving us a long to-do list of planning out the will of God. I have found that to-do lists do not help me in my walk with the Lord spiritually. What I have found is that when I rightfully evaluate myself and truly evaluate myself and see myself, as James says in verse 14 of chapter 4, a mist that vanishes, I find myself in a place of humility before God and therefore usability. You've heard me say this before. If life was a football game, I'm well into the third quarter. And just stay with that analogy for a second. I'm not guaranteed four quarters. Let the sobriety of that for us sit on us a little bit. I'm a mist that vanishes. You see this James chapter 4 verse 6 verse 10, 1 Peter 5, 6-7. Real humility receives the powerful, sustaining, preserving, and providing grace of God. But beware... Beware of false humility that agrees with something just to avoid disagreement. Or allowing bad teaching or theology just to get along. As good as humility is, false humility can be as devastating. To deal in the right is not arrogance. It is a humble thing to submit to God in right. But what James is dealing with here is making sure we all self-evaluate ourselves and recognize I'm not guaranteed tomorrow therefore I must live today as robustly and dependent on God as I possibly can number two don't disguise personal communal or societal convictions as the will of God for other people to obey this is part of what was happening with them some were being successful others wanted what they had and they were fighting with one another over success and how they divided assets among them. And it turned into all manner of chaos and they were making plans and presumption. And people had all manner of ideas that were coming from demonic sources and putting them on one another. So be careful. Be careful. This is why we took so much time in the middle of this sermon today to look at what is God's will. What does he explicitly say his purposes are? So that we don't disguise personal, communal, societal convictions as the will of God for everybody else to obey. This kind of personal conviction imposed for everybody will lead to warring over worldly passions disguised as God's will. We must be careful with that. Number three, and this is where we'll end. And it's, it's a little bit more lengthy, but I promise I'll, this is the last point. It's the last application. By all means, by all means, make and live in good plans. And don't let plans become the object of effort and faith. Rather, learn to rest in God's will. Let me say that again. By all means, make and live in good plans. God's not anti-plan, okay? He's not anti-plan. But don't let plans become the object and effort and faith. Rather, learn to rest in God's will. Remember, God gave plans for building the temple. God is into good plans. James is not saying ditch good planning. James is addressing the attitude of our hearts regarding how we live out a well-planned life within the will of God. Plans cannot become our hope, our trust, or our security. Listen to this. This is very important for a lot of us living in this pace of life that we find ourselves right now. With the speed of change in our world today, even the best leaders in the world are reluctant to make and implement plans beyond a year. Pick up a Harvard Business Review and read some articles on planning in the business world. There is too much change with too many variables to forecast too far into the future. And so for the world in general, I'm convinced that the growing speed of change around us is a built-in frustration from God to combat man's arrogance. Our individual and corporate abilities for increased efficiency have outstripped our ability to make long-term plans, and we keep trying to do it. So we keep harder, we keep working harder to make things happen at a breakneck pace that leads us into an unsustainable cycle in which we crash and burn and then we wonder what happened. Things blow up and we wonder what happened. We're warring inside, we're warring against the will of God, we're warring against faith that is radically dependent on the Lord today. And then we begin to war with each other and we wonder what in the world happened. Let that not be us. The mission and life on mission is not to be a burden, but a supernatural walk in the blessing of God. I believe Jesus is continuing to say to his people what he said in Matthew 11, 28. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I recognize for some of us sitting in here this morning, this feels burdensome. Because everything around us is geared opposite to this. And the pace demands we keep up. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? Yeah. So how are we to take this last point of application, by all means live in good plans, but don't let them become the object and effort of faith? One word, and I'm going to quickly unpack it. Sabbath. Three Rivers Church, we have to learn Sabbath. All through the Bible, Sabbath is a command God gave because He Himself is a practicer of Sabbath. Sabbath predated the law. Not because God got tired, but because, because God in His very nature stops. In creation, six days, and on the seventh, He what? Sabbath. Before sin, God stopped. Sabbath isn't something God put in to help weary sinners stop sinning. Sabbath is part of the nature and character of God Himself. A life centered on the will of God is a life that has to imitate God and His nature and character and God's a God of Sabbath. I know this doesn't play in our world, does it? It's just making you nervous right now because you're trying to think about how am I going to Sabbath with all the things I have to do today much less tomorrow just to get through next week. And, and I wish I could have some easy answers for you. I don't. I'm in the grind with you. We as a family are in the grind with you. We dropped the oldest off at UNG yesterday. We got a senior and a junior in high school. We got sports. We got stuff. We got work. We got life. And it just hammers, 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 hammers. And if we are not careful, we can find ourselves warring internally, then warring against one another, then warring here, because we're running, 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 and not even imitating the God who says, Seek my will, my kingdom first. And I might just add to you what you're seeking outside of that. Can you think of a place the Lord said that? Yeah. Sabbath. Constant activity is not from God. Constant activity leads to being wore down. Wore down leads to saying things you ought not say to yourself and to God. And you say them to other people. And then you get out of bounds of God's goodwill. And the next thing you know, you've got Chaos. I wonder if the Lord's not just saying, look at Matthew 11:28. 28, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Sabbath. So how am I supposed to do that? One, slow down. Slow down. As much as the world and our jobs and everything wants to put a timeline on you, God does not operate on a the timeline. There are instances all through the Old Testament, God just stopped stuff from happening. Stopped the sun from going down. I believe that if you're new to our church we believe our bibles i think there's there's some literal reality there i think that's historical little re- literal reality because the god who made the earth and the sun and everything in this universe can stop it if he wants to hebrews 1 1 and 3 tells us the lord jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power it stays in existence because he wills it to be in existence If he wants to stop it he can stop it you know what he can do for you and me tomorrow he can make time increase I don't know how he does that metaphysically, but he can make us more productive in less time, and we can be unaware of it. I think and believe he does that kind of stuff. So be aware of slowing down and not letting necessarily a calendar dictate getting ahead of God. Number two, rest. Psalm 127.2 says, It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved. Sleep. It is vain. Worthless. Useless that we rise early and go late to rest. Eating the bread of anxious toil because he gives sleep. So rest. Take a nap today. Take a nap. It will not be sin. Third, wait for the Lord. My best count. And I would not trust my count. Go do your own count. Dyslexic people counting words in the Bible can be dangerous. 136 times I found that phrase, wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord, wait for the Lord, wait for the Lord. So often we get ourselves in trouble by getting ahead of God, by acting outside the will of God and the time of God because we're anxious to make something happen. Psalm 37, 7 says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. So what? Be still. Wait. Fourth, simplify. Simplify. Sobriety about who we are should lead us to simplicity in everything so that others who come along and run along with us in our footsteps can also do what we do. Simplify. Often we want to get complicated because in arrogance we want other people to think that we're something else. Look what I do. Simplify. Don't be presumptuous. Simplify. Get narrow and go deep in everything. Often we're far too broad. We try to do too much and we don't do any of it very well. Get narrow and go deep. And finally, If you will discover God's metric for success, you'll find joy. If you will discover God's metric for success, you'll find joy. I've spent my life in the fear of man, seeking to placate and please people, to achieve some standard that God has never given me to achieve, among many other things that nearly killed me. care far too much what you and other people think of me and I care very little about what God thinks of me the fear of man is a snare (laughs) the fear of this world is a snare if you'll discover God's metrics of success you'll find the place of happiness what are God's metrics we say it when we talk about KDSC D discipleship, hear God and obey God. You'll find that theme all through the Bible, hear the Lord and obey Him. And I just want to confess to you, if I really believed that, I wouldn't be as broke as I am. I can say that with my brain because I've read it in the Bible enough, but my heart still has trouble believing it. If we will find God's metrics of success, which is hear and obey, not number of chairs, not dollars, not nations engaged, not number of kids in care, or no longer in care, not that those things are unimportant, but they're not number one. If we will simply hear God and His Word, submit to His good will, and do the things He said, I have a feeling if we just did those five things, If I just personally focused on those five simple, clearly written things in the Bible, explicit, they're explicit, there's no guesswork in them. I don't have to go interpret them further. There's no discussion to be had. They're just in the text. If I just did those things, can you imagine what living in Sabbath might look like? Just hear and obey. If I would just hear God's Word and obey. If we'll find God's metrics for success, we'll find happiness. And shun the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride in life. We may just find that wars cease internally and externally. At least ones that crack us up and beat us up beyond the ability to function. Seek God's will. Go hard after God's will. And there you're going to find an immense amount of freedom to hear God and obey him. Let's pray together, then we're going to worship in song. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would cause us to go hard after your good, pleasing, and perfect will. We pray you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. We need you to do exactly what Jesus said you would do, and that is to counsel us into truth. Remind us of everything that you have said. Come and be near us and with us and walk along beside us. Help us not to walk where you don't walk or to go where you don't go, but to go only where you walk and only where you go. Cause our thinking to come in line with your word heal, transform, and restore our souls. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. So even now, Holy Spirit, would you restore and to walk in your supernatural way.